go. And we are in the blank chapter. I know you're close, fifth. That's okay. That's okay. It's all right. I don't even remember what I preach on half the time. It's okay. So we're in chapter, Daniel chapter five today, and we're going to jump right in. The title of the message today is, How Did I Get Here? How did I get here? Not literally, don't answer this, in a car, I walked. I'm not asking you that. Um, Metaphorically, largely reaching and speaking, how did I get here? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Maybe if life has really gone badly for you and you're in a rough place and you wake up one day and you say, how did I get here? You wake up and you look in the mirror and you realize you are 70 pounds overweight and you got rolls on rolls on rolls and you're thinking, how did I get here? Or you wake up and you're skinny as a twig and you wonder, how did I get here? And maybe you got to go to the doctor and see if something's off. Um, You wake up one day with immense debt and you wonder, how did I get here? Uh, Your relationship ended abruptly. How did I get here? You're no longer in close proximity to the Lord. And you're not really feeling all of the, the blessings and the grace and all that you've learned about God. And you wonder, how did I get here? Um, I don't know if you all know an actor who's pretty up and coming, Jonathan Majors. Y'all know that name? Maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't. Uh, He has since starred in Creed 3. He is the main antagonist to Donnie. Um, He is now Kang or Kong the Destroyer, not Kong. Kang, Kane, Kane, the Destroyer. I like more his title in Loki, He Who Remains. That's so awesome. I wish I was called He Who Remains. I'm going to be the last person in church every single Sunday from now on just so I can be called He Who Remains. Um, Last Man Standing at a Buffet, He Who Remains. Um, I want to be that guy. He's, he's, He's becoming like the main, again, antagonist of the MC Universe. Uh, taking up Thanos' place. He's really well known. I actually first knew him, not from one of his first movies, but a popular movie that came out a couple years ago, a Netflix original called The Harder They Fall. It's a Western, uh, and I loved him in that one, so maybe some of you saw that. Um, But what he is very well known for, uh, at least by some, especially by me right now, that was really sad to hear is that he is being prosecuted and facing criminal charges for domestic assault currently. Um, and there's a lot going on in the news. If you watch that part, it's not, it's not main headlines because obviously it's not that important to many people, but it's pretty, it's pretty big deal for those of us that like him, especially as he who remains, um, because we're wondering, can this guy even film anymore? Is he going to be in prison? Like what's happening? Is it a lie? Is it not? And I just wonder, like, even for myself, how did we get here? I want to keep enjoying this guy as an actor, but, and I really liked him as an actor, but, man, he, he assaulted a woman? And, and what's it all about? I don't know, is it true, is it not? But all I know is that's where he is right now, and it's affected at least certain parts of his life and other people's lives. How did he get there? How do we get in places like that where everything is going so well? He was on Ellen. He was on some other talk show host, Jonathan Majors. Um, And I think he was voted the sexiest man alive for 2023. Don't quote me on that. Um, He was really well known for a time. And now he's facing prison. That's a shame. It's just a shame, regardless of whether it's true or not. The fact that he is where he is right now is a shame, and you wonder, how did I get here? And he's not the first. We can look at celebrities and movie stars and athletes and CEOs and pastors of megachurches that have done stupid stuff. And one day they are on top of the world, and the next day... They might be going to jail. Um, We all know stories about people from afar, or maybe people in our own lives where this happens. Um, Today, we're going to kind of see how this happens to a king. And this king's name is 
not Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Belshazzar. So let me start reading for you Daniel chapter 5, where we pick up our story in this Old Testament book. And it says in the first verse, King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right. So you might be wondering, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, as far as we know, God's, well, not as far as we know, we know God's word came to pass and he's no longer the ruler, as we had been seeing in his dreams leading up to this point. Now, the scriptural account has fast-forwarded to a point in time where he is no longer the king. He's likely dead at this point. And now there is one who is apparently his son, but it's not his son. It's an heir, likely a grandson or a great-grandson, or maybe even a distant nephew to Nebuchadnezzar. He's blood, um, but it's not that Nebuchadnezzar is his direct father. In fact, there were multiple leaders that had taken Nebuchadnezzar's place before Belshazzar took this rule. And in fact, Belshazzar is not even the king at this time. He's more the, the king, the, the region, or the steward who is ruling in place of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, who's out in the palm springs of the desert uh, because it was known that he didn't really like Babylon and he didn't like to do work. So now you got Nebuchadnezzar's son, a blood relative of the Nebuchadnezzar that we have been looking at over the last weeks, who is in charge and is ruling over Babylon in a sense and in a way. And the story picks up simply saying he's having a great festival and there's a lot of wine being passed around. In other words, what's happening is there's a party taking place in the king's court of Babylon. Um, now, it says that he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. The Bible is trying to be clear to show us in this moment that Belshazzar is showing off. He's having a party, and he's at the seat of his throne, sharing his wine and making sure that everybody can see he is the guy who made this rager happen. Um, so, during this huge party, many scholars have deduced that it is very likely uh, quite the party. It mentions all of his wives and his concubines were here, and all the lords of Babylon were present. Um, usually, women weren't invited to the same place as lords for official dinners of such, especially not all of the wives and the concubines. Whew, that's going to be a real problem. And yet they are. Um, what many scholars believe is happening here is quite the party. In fact, there's probably stripping and orgies taking place as everybody's getting drunk and music is being played. It is it's really that kind of party that's taking place at this point as we read in the scripture. Um, now, what you need to understand that the biblical text does not record is what is taking place, as we know historically, from extra-biblical text outside historical documents of people of this time and following that recorded what was actually happening in the grander scheme of the Babylonian Empire. At this very moment, the Babylonians were being attacked by the Medo-Persians. Two kingdoms, the Persians were at the top, the Medes kind of served them, but they're described the Medo-Persian Empire. They are attacking the Babylonians. Now, just so you understand contextually, under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Nebuchadnezzar that we know from weeks past, this city of Babylon was fortified with three walls. You have an inner ring, a middle ring, and an outer ring. I'm about to get uh, corny and say, is anybody ever here? Watch Attack on Titan, yeah, you know, that's exactly what is happening here. Y'all don't know what's going on. I'm sorry, that's an inside thing. Um, so you have an inner circle, an inner city where the king would be with a wall surrounding that, 
another uh, city with a wall around that, and then the outer city with the wall around that. And it was likely that there were economic differences, socio-economic differences between the inner, the middle, and the outer city. So you had the Lord of Lords, then you had the middle class, then you had the poor people. Um, anyway, what you need to understand is Nebuchadnezzar fortified the city in such a way that those walls, especially the inner wall, was recorded as being 40 feet tall, and were so thick that chariot races were held on top of them. So this wasn't just like a little narrow wall that you had one guy sitting on. You had lines of chariots, very wide, that races were held upon the top of this wall. So it was a very thick wall. In other words, you didn't have to be that worried when you had enemies coming against you. And it's at this point that the Medo-Persian Empire were attacking Babylon. And what is happening while they're being attacked? What's happening in the inner city, in the king's court? People are getting drunk and having sex and partying. That is what is happening. It says that there was so much wine going around that eventually, under the influence of wine, as the text records, Belshazzar gets so drunk that he decides in this fun time, um, he's going to bring out some special drinkware. He says, hey guys, I want you to go to the treasury. Do you remember my whatever, great-grandfather, grandfather, great-uncle, whoever it was, but Nebuchadnezzar? our former ruler, my ancestor. Do you remember how he sieged the city of Jerusalem and sacked the temple and robbed it of all of its ceremonial possessions and brought it here to the treasury, including certain things that were used to worship God, their God, Yahweh? I want you to bring that out to this party, and I want to pass around that cup, and I want us to drink wine from the cup of Yahweh in honor of our gods, our deities. Don't get drunk. <laughs> um, so that's what happens. Brings out the special drinking glasses. Um, and they continue in their debauchery, their partying, um, while they're being attacked by the Medo-Persians, and they are living it up so much that they are blaspheming the one true God. So in summary so far, here's a point. Pride is a problem. Pride is a problem. We all might be able to agree upon that, but I, I want you to really let yourself hold on to that fact right now, that pride is a problem. And I don't want you to let go of it as we continue through this text. Pride convinces us that we don't have to face our problems and that we can have fun at the expense of God. Pride is a problem. The Apostle Paul writes many, many years later to the Galatians. And in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, he says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, obviously, this is not something that I would expect someone like Belshazzar to really, really, really know, but as we're about to see, he does know plenty because he is a follower of Nebuchadnezzar. And he knows at this point all that has happened in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and how this God the God who ordained these particular cups to be used in worship of him in his temple, he knows this God. And he's choosing to enjoy pleasure at the expense of this very God. 
So I wonder, for us, has pride so seeped into our hearts, into our minds, that we think that all that we have been given and all that we have attained is simply for our pleasure, and so much so that it is at the expense of honoring God. So let's keep reading. What happens? At this rager, this party, this mass orgy, this strip club, where everybody's getting drunk, here's what happens. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall of the royal palace next to the lampstand. Belshazzar's like, what's, what's in this, man? Somebody slip me something? The king watching the hand as it wrote. Then the king's face turned pale. <laughs> Think Pastor Chase right now. And his thoughts terrified him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and rank third in the kingdom. Sounds pretty good, right? Um, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar became greatly terrified, and his face turned pale, and his lords were perplexed. Okay, so real quick, um, I think it's uh, worth noting the severity of this man's distress. Um, it says that his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So you kind of think like, um, when I get scared um, and I'm running, I go limp. Like, it's, it's the worst. That's why I have to fight. I know flight doesn't work for me. Because if I flight, fear sets in, and then I just, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get caught. I can't run. Like, that's what happens. It really happens to me. Oh, whenever my brothers would chase me growing up, I'd be like, stop, stop. Ah, I, I would go limp. It, it just, my, my body doesn't work that way. I have to fight. Um, that's the only, like, chemical in my body that actually is worth anything in those moments. Not the case for Belshazzar or he's just afraid and he's going limp in this moment, at least at the initial reading. In fact, what uh, many uh, Aramaic and Hebrew linguists have deduced is that this is more of a, um, uh, a euphemism uh, for the man peed his pants. Literally, he's sitting on his throne drunk enjoying himself, and all of a sudden he sees fingers writing on a wall, and the man wets himself. He loses bodily control. Um, so imagine that scene, the king of Babylon, the greatest empire of the world, in his throne room, throwing this party, pees his pants. I love God. <laughs> He'll make the worst of rulers pee their pants. Uh, that's all you need to know walking away out of here today. God will make you pee your pants. Um, no, but maybe. Um, so I just want to point out here before we keep reading, if you've been with us so far uh, throughout these weeks since we've started this book, you might have noticed you see a pattern repeat itself here. There's a king of kings doing wicked and evil things. And he's doing them not just broadly to everyone, but he takes special exception to the people of God or the ways of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and he does something extra wicked to try and defame this God. That's what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar leading up to this chapter multiple times. The same has happened so far with Belshazzar. And then God shows up to humble the king, literally make him pee his pants in this moment. And then the king's response to this difficulty is exactly the same as his predecessor. Bring in all the things in the world that will never fill the void in my life, that will never answer my deepest, darkest issues. He does exactly what his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar does. He calls for the wise men, the Chaldeans, the diviners, and he promises them riches and wealth. If you can, then you're going to get it's so what Nebuchadnezzar did. First, Nebuchadnezzar threatens to kill them. Then, in a subsequent moment, he promises to give them riches. And now in this moment, we see Belshazzar doing the same exact thing. It's a different king facing similar problems and exhibiting the same 
patterns. So I'll just repeat last week's title here again and say to you, old habits die hard. So the man's afraid. Um, And let me summarize for you the next few verses. Um, The queen at this time, likely not his actual wife, but it could be his father's, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, so maybe his mom. Some scholars actually believe this is the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, so maybe his grandma, maybe his great aunt, we don't really know, but the queen comes in and tells Belshazzar, don't be afraid, don't worry, clean yourself up, put your diaper on, because I'm here to tell you that there is an old man in our kingdom who can help with this problem, just like he helped your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and his name is Daniel. Now, at this point in history, you have to fast forward nearly 60 almost 70 years because the time of fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah was coming to pass. So what we read at the end of chapter four, now broadly almost 70 years have passed. So you have a young Daniel is now an old man, likely in his 80s, maybe pushing his 90s. Um, so Daniel is called, Daniel comes in. He tells, uh, Belshazzar tells Daniel that I've heard of you. Uh, I know of what you have done in the past and your great deeds and that you are filled with the spirit of the gods, plural, small g, as Nebuchadnezzar described him, as the queen has described him, now how he he is describing Daniel to his face. Um, And then he says, so I know what you've done. Here's my offer. Interpret what none of the other people here can interpret, and I will grant you power. You will be the third in the kingdom, because think about it, Nebuchadnezzar, the true king, off out in uh, the, the, the palm springs of the desert enjoying himself, then you have Belshazzar number two, and now Daniel would be number three, if he can give the king what he wants. Uh, he promises him power and riches if he can interpret the writing on the wall that that hand did. Um, so, I'm going to have a little bit of fun just for a minute. Um, And I was, as I was reading this, I was thinking of Pastor Chase. Uh, Because if you know something about Pastor Chase, you know that he is really good with puns. I am very bad with puns, but I love puns. Um, I'm not clever enough to come up with puns, but Pastor Chase, man, he can keep coming up with them uh, and and really never be at at a loss for puns. And I know Katrina loves when Pastor Chase is giving his puns. So I want you to imagine Daniel in this moment is Pastor Chase. Doesn't happen in the text, but just imagine this man, Belshazzar, peed his pants because he saw a supernatural hand, just a hand, not a person, a hand show up and start writing on the wall. First, I want you to think the Adams family. You got hand shows up and it's walking around everywhere, and Belshazzar's like, oh my gosh, are you guys seeing this? What is going on? Um, And then the hand goes and starts writing on the wall, and poof, disappears. Daniel comes in, and I can just imagine Daniel being Pastor Chase in this moment, and saying things like, hey king, uh, I heard things were getting pretty out of hand here, or hey king, I'm here to lend you a hand, or king, I gotta hand it to you. No king's ever peed his pants before. that was just me having a little bit of fun in that moment because it's just too good. Um, so Daniel shows up. The king promises him riches and power over the kingdom if he can interpret. And here in verse 17, let me just read one verse for you, is the first words of Daniel's response that I love. Then Daniel answered in the presence of the king, let your gifts be for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and let him know the interpretations. Let me make this point to you, and then we'll explore it a little bit deeper. Daniel cares about speaking the truth. He doesn't care about what people will do for him in return for speaking the truth. Once again, we see now an old Daniel still full of the spirit of God and integrity, not compromising his convictions to serve the one true God. And old man Daniel promised with all of these riches, I can imagine, could have said something along the lines of, you think this is the first time I've been promised a promotion? 
Do you think this is the first time that a king has offered me great power? Do you know that at this point, we don't know if he actually, he likely wasn't still the ruler of the magistrates and the magicians and the wise men as he was when he was young. Um, So he's probably not that anymore. But he could have said, I was in that position years ago. You know what? Keep your riches and your wealth because it was never about that to begin with. I was always being faithful to God and God has called me to speak truth and love well. And we've seen that throughout Daniel's life living as an exile in Babylon. And in this moment, his convictions haven't changed. He says, I am going to speak the truth. Keep your riches, keep your rewards, keep your promises. That's not what I'm about. This is a faith. I mean, really, this, this is a faith that, again, I look at and I just like scratch my head and think, man, I'd take all those riches and I'd take that promotion. I, I, sure, bring it on. Um, the Lord blesses. <laughs> and I think, man, um, what a faith that he doesn't care about any of that. Um, and what a faith that says, I'm going to speak the truth for the sake of honoring God, and that's it. So he serves God for God, and not because of what he can get out of God. Let me say that again. He serves God for God, not because of what he can get out of God. Again, if you're holding on to what I told you, that pride is a problem, stop and think about that for a second. Why are you even here today? Why do you serve God? Why do you read your Bible? And I praise God, if that's you, that you keep doing it and that you are doing it. But now I have to ask a slightly deeper question. Why are you doing it? Um, is it because you're just here to get something out of God? Are you here to get something out of this relationship um, that is just self-serving? Um, it won't be up on the screen, but Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So clearly for Jesus, riches was something worthy to be discussed. And he gives a warning about it. And we have Daniel here showing us how he is not concerned with riches. Let me jump to another New Testament story, and we'll take a moment here. It's in Acts chapter 8. Peter is going around with the other apostles, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are doing miraculous signs and wonders, furthering the gospel and building the kingdom of God. And there was a man named Simon, not Simon Peter, a non-apostle, who was deemed Simon the sorcerer. A man who many people in the town knew well for being able to cure their ailments or read their futures and tell them what they were hoping that they could have heard from their long-lost loved ones that they never got to hear once more. He was considered a sorcerer and very well known. Until these Galilean poor boys filled with the Holy Spirit show up and do things the likes of which Simon had never even dreamed of. And they were doing it under the power of the Spirit of the one true God. Simon gets saved as far as we know. Uh, He receives the salvation of Christ. And then in verse 18, um, he decides he wants more. And this short passage is going to show us the motivation behind his desire. Um, And again, I said to you before um, that Daniel serves God for God and not because of what he can get out of God. For God, not because of what he can get out of a relationship with God. Let's look at Simon the sorcerer. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Sounds nice. But we know this man is not at all in a right heart or in a right frame of mind. Peter answers, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see. Okay, so why would Simon do all of this? 
Peter's going to say, why? For I see that you are full of bitterness. Bitter against who? These Galileans that came in and took all of his turf and was getting all of his clients, even though they're not doing it for money. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, they went on preaching God in the Samaritan villages. So Simon here makes a wicked request. In fact, in church history, this is what has been now titled or termed simony. It's an English word originating from this very event. It's the idea of trying to purchase an ecclesiastical or church office of leadership. So it would be when this church back in 2020 was looking to fill the pastoral lead pastor, pastoral vacancy, um, a guy coming up and saying, how much you want? How, how much you want? I'll give it to you and I'll become your new pastor. And that actually became a practice in the early church um, where even bishops and lords in the church would say, oh, you want that position in that place? Well, come on, show me the money. You'll get what you want. You'll be able to play, be placed there over that parish. Um, this is the idea of Simon. By the way, I didn't pay anything to get this position. <laughs> um, and I didn't offer. Um, so Simon desired authority to distribute the spirit of the one true God by offering to pay for it. And again, why would he want this power? I don't question the salvation of Simon. I really don't. I don't think we see Peter himself even denying the salvation of Simon here. I believe that he was on the right path, but now old habits die hard. This was a man of authority, a man who had the ear of the people and the attention of the people, people who used to come running to him to pay and solve all of their problems. Now they don't come to him at all. And while he has been saved by Jesus, there's still an old self trying to work its way back up to the driver's seat and says, that was once your place. So you can't beat him, join him, buy him. You see pride in Simon's life rearing its ugly head. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, who you were before, Simon the sorcerer, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. This is a present active indicative. It's a continuous verb. Your old self, which you're to put off, is still being corrupted. So when you lay it aside, it's still doing its work. It's still doing its wickedness. It's still doing its madness. Put it off. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. To allow who you are and how you understand yourself to be radically transformed. Yes. Put it on in the renewing of your minds. Yes. Who you are in Jesus. Yes. Not who you once were. Right. As good as it might have been. For many of us, before coming to Jesus, man, life was horrible. And since coming to Jesus, you just continually praise God. And there might be some aspects of it that you're like, yeah, that I, I missed that. But no, life is good. For some of us, <laughs> Life before Jesus might have been really good. You're out partying all the time. You're making a lot of money. You're doing whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. And in that sense, life might have been really good for you and you had to sacrifice. And I commend you for it if that's who you are and you're here today and praise God for it. But I just want to be real about it. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, that sin, that was so stupid and why would I ever do that? Sometimes sin is really fun. Can I get an amen? And I know it sounds really sacrilegious. I'm not saying to sin. I'm just being real with you in this place. Can we be real? Let's not pretend sin isn't fun. Sin can be a hoot sometimes. And that's why it's all the harder when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. I command you daily put to death the acts of the sinful nature. Daily. The old self continually wants to be what you clothe yourselves with. 
And it's not going to go away quietly. It's active. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I believe this is, as for all of us in our own ways, the struggle that Simon, formerly the sorcerer, is now facing. He sees what he once had and he wants it back. But now he's probably rationalizing, at least I'm doing it in the name of the one true God and I'm going to do it with the Holy Spirit of God. But he doesn't want to do it for God to further his kingdom. He wants it because he wants his old position back. So let me make this point to you. To all of us that are maybe so bitter in our hearts, maybe because we're not quite where we thought we would be at this point in our walk with God, or maybe because the things that we're still struggling with haven't been fixed at this point in our relationship with God, and we had a lot of ideas of what was waiting for us and they still haven't come to pass, maybe for a lot of us there's a bitterness that's setting in, a bitterness towards God and towards others, And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting for God to do what you're expecting him to do. Let me say this. Faith does not bring back who we were. It reveals who God has made us to be. You are created in the image of God and sin has skewed that. And now God is showing you who you are in him. God is not here to restore who you were. God is not here to get you your job back. God is not here to put you on top of the food chain again and be the authority of authorities and whatever that looks like for you. It's not what God is about. God's a different God. He is a loving God. He is a mighty God that can make kings pee their pants. He has different ways and different measures. Faith doesn't bring back who we were. It reveals who God made us to be. And this is the faith that I believe Daniel had and that we see Daniel has all these years living as an exile. For nearly 70 years, this man has been living in a pagan culture as an exile. Albeit he's had favor from God over all these years, and yet he's had to go through some real trials too. He's had to watch his friends be thrown into a fiery furnace. He's about to go through some more stuff that we're going to see in the weeks to come, like being thrown into a lion's den for his faith, for being persecuted for his faith. And yet, this man has a faith that I want. (laughs) So to the king, oh, I'm going to need some water. I didn't have a pepper, (coughs) but... I think it's the residue of the pep. No, I just choked on my own spit. (laughs) No, Pastor Chase is at, he is king of the hill right now. Mm. See, I could never take a bite of a pepper because spit gets me. So what do you think would happen if I ate one of those peppers? I would die. I I would die. Like 911 instantly. I'd be dead. Um, There would be laying on of hands in this place in the spiritual way. Um, So, Daniel says, keep your money, keep your promises. I'm going to speak the truth no matter what. Um, And we pick up in verse 18. Now Daniel's continuing to respond. He gives an interpretation to hand from the Adams family, not really writing on the wall. O king, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages tremble and feared before him, still referring to Nebuchadnezzar. He killed those he wanted to kill, kept alive those he wanted to keep alive, honored those he wanted to honor, and degraded those he wanted to degrade. So this was a man who did what he wanted to do, um, and nobody could stop him, king of kings. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he could, so that he acted proudly, He was deposed from his kingly throne and his glory was stripped from him. Now let me be very specific. He was already acting proudly and not in humility, but right here what Daniel is referring to is when he came against God. In phrases like, and whose God is going to save you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when he knows who Yahweh is? That's what is being referred to here when he said he refused to humble himself. It was before God. 
And so here's the result. He was driven from human society and his mind was made like that of an animal. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys uh, and he was fed grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and sets over it whomever he will. This is what we went over last week. Okay, so this is what happened. Daniel was recalling to Belshazzar's memory the history of his predecessor who was his family, his blood. He was not far removed from this. He was likely alive and was witness to many of these events that transpired between Nebuchadnezzar, God, and the people of God. He grew up hearing these stories. He knew what had transpired. And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. That's the phrase you got to underline in your Bible or highlight or take note of. You, even though you knew all of this, you didn't humble your heart. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, exactly like Nebuchadnezzar did. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose power is your very breath, and to whom belong all your ways, you have not honored. So in other words, if we summarize this, we can see Daniel saying a couple of things. First of all, he was actually jabbing Belshazzar a little bit, saying, you're not even half the man Nebuchadnezzar was. You're not even the ruler at this point. Your daddy out in the Palm Springs is the ruler, and he doesn't even want to be here. So you are much lesser of, of a ruler. And Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude, but he was a great ruler that was able to make the greatest kingdom on earth that the world has ever seen and build it up. Who are you? You're a punk throwing a rager where everybody's getting drunk and having sex while your enemies are at the door. And you think you're okay? Have you learned nothing from your family's history. Wow, I, th I just think that's worth pausing and stopping. He's calling Belshazzar to look at the fact that your family's history teaches you better. And you're doing nothing different. In fact, you're, you're a little bit worse. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take the artifacts out of the temple. You're using them wickedly to worship false gods you might even be a little bit worse as far as it pertains to wickedness so here's a point pride keeps us from learning from the past remember last week i i mentioned the the definition einstein's definition of insanity someone who does the same things expecting different results right <clears throat> um Nebuchadnezzar was bad enough. We know that so far. Um, but at least for Belshazzar, he had Nebuchadnezzar's example to learn from. Hey, if the king is doing something wicked and God shows up in a miraculous dream or vision-like way, as he did to my ancestor Nebuchadnezzar, and if I choose to fight God in the process when God is trying to tell me something to repent and turn from my wicked ways, and I refuse, and I dig my heels into the ground, and I'm stiff-necked and say, no, my way, because I'm bigger and better than you, God, then history has proven that it never ends well. And God always gets the last word. And his ways are sovereign, and he is all-powerful. He is the king of the kings and the Lord of lords. And yet Nebuchadnezzar exhibited Einstein's definition of insanity and kept doing it. Now, if it's not bad enough, Belshazzar has all that to learn from. <clears throat> um, and yet he doesn't heed wisdom of his family's history. So it's a problem when we have the opportunity to learn from our mistakes, but refuse to. Let me say that again. It's a problem when we have the opportunity to learn from our mistakes, but refuse to. 
Do you know what that's called? It's called being stupid. <laughs> it's nothing fancy. You have the opportunity to learn from your past mistakes, your family's past mistakes. And let me be real. I know all of us struggle with this in some way or another, that we might repeat, be repeating the patterns of the past. And the definition of that is stupidity. And can I say this? You are in good company today because there are a lot of stupid people here today as far as it pertains to that definition. I myself am. Which is why I'm here to tell you all the more reason for you to accept the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because in spite of the stupidity that we might insanely continue to exhibit generation after generation after generation, and even if we are trying our best, unlike Belshazzar tried, to overcome the mistakes of our family's history, but keep finding ourselves repeating those patterns, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, it's okay, I do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And accept the gospel. So, Daniel goes on and he says this in verse 24. So from his presence, the hand was sent, the presence of God, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of that, of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made concerning him that he should rank third in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Uh, Brandon, could I bother you for a second? And can you bring me that table up here while I continue on here? And then, yeah, Evie, you could bring me that. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So, um, Mene... Mene, Tekel, and Parson, um, on the surface, linguistically refer to weights. Not like weights, but it has to do with a certain level of weights. One might be a little bit heavier and one might be a little bit lighter than the other. Many scholars believe that what these terms refer to are, uh, they're, they're monetary. It's referring to monies of different levels, uh, currencies of different amounts. Um, so, what I mean to say by what it could mean is that there are a lot of different ways that you can interpret the scripture that a lot of scholars have interpreted. It. How I'm going to interpret it for you today um, is simply sticking with the text. And when Daniel gives the interpretation, Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You've been weighed and it's insufficient. You are wanting. Um, so, uh, I want you to imagine this for a second. Um, God is weighing you. <laughs> He's weighing you. Um, and this is what Daniel is saying to Belshazzar. Your, your rule as a king, this party with all the booze, all the women, uh, oh, and, and using my, my cups, um, to enjoy your drunkenness um, that you're using for, yeah, that's, that's it's weighing against you right now. Um, so I have a fun, modern-day, slightly dirty scale. Uh, not the kind of scale that you stand on, but anybody know what kind of scale this is? It's for food. It's a food scale because I need to measure how much I eat. And, uh, yeah, I don't really use it the way I'm supposed to. So... Um, you come to the Lord, and you have all of your, your deeds, your acts, wicked and righteous. The Bible says that we will all stand before the throne of God one day and give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Um, and so now we stand before God, and he is weighing us. 
You tear that so you're at a perfect zero. Y'all can't see it, but I want to see it for myself. Um, and now in this moment, the picture that we see, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, specifically Tekel, is Daniel with language, interpreting the language, saying this is the situation that you're in. You are standing before God and you have come to him in the marketplace and you want to buy something. And in the marketplace, the sellers would have a weight and depending on what you wanted to buy, you had to put a certain amount of money, of shekels or whatever the currency might have been until the vendor looks at it and says, you're good, you've paid. You have measured up in weight. The scales have balanced. And Daniel says, God is weighing you, Belshazzar. You didn't learn from your family's past. You have many wives, many concubines. That's never good. Um, you decided to throw a party while your kingdom is being sieged by its enemies. You're arrogant and you're prideful. Um, oh yeah, uh, you're getting everybody drunk. You're so drunk you peed your pants. I don't know if God would hold that one against you, but I uh, <laughs> hope he doesn't hold that one against me. <laughs> um, if you know what I mean, no. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you um, decided to take the very instruments that were dedicated to worship God, imagine God is speaking. You took my instruments, Belshazzar, and you decided to use my instruments to worship false gods, fake gods, evil gods, powerless gods. All is an affront to me. You blaspheme against me. And what can I say but you don't measure up. So this very night, your kingdom is going to be ripped from your hands and Babylon will fall, as I prophesied it would. Now, one more point of history that I want to give you as you're holding on to this very sad, very weighty reality. Um, historically, the city of Babylon had the Euphrates River running right through it. You have the Tigris and the Euphrates and Mesopotamia, um, that it was considered a part of the Fertile Crescent, the, 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 the cradle of civilization um, was believed, we don't know, but somewhere there the Garden of Eden originated. And this great city, established by Nebuchadnezzar, built up by him, is the very city that now Belshazzar is in, and the Euphrates River is running right through it. Water at this time, and to this day, we can agree, is a source of life. My wife and I used to live, and we went and visited my grandpa in Washington State in the city of Yakima. And when we were driving to Yakima in 2016, right after being newlyweds, just, just days before, um, we arrive on the outskirts of the city that we're driving into, and my wife says, wait, is, is this where we're going to be living? And in that moment, it dawned upon me, she had never been to Yakima. <laughs> uh, not her fault, but I'm just going to say she didn't know what she was getting herself into. Um, and I realized, oh shoot, I, I never, I talked about this place, but I never told her what it was like. Literally, the, the geographical location. Yakima, uh, unlike the uh, term that, or the, the phrase that's been given to the state of Washington, which is known as the evergreen state. Um, Yakima is not filled with evergreens. Yakima is a desert. And I mean a desert. And not like the nice um, Tucson, Arizona, beautiful desert, like vegetation and the different cacti and all these weird little dangerous looking plants that are still pretty. Yakima is just, it's, anybody ever seen a part of the Caribbean? I think it's Part three, when Johnny Depp is in Davy Jones' locker, and it's just white sand upon white sand, well, just think brown hills upon brown hills with tumbleweed. Not even cactus, it's just tumbleweed. You're like, where am I right now? It's not even pretty. It's not even white sand. It's just like 
hard, rough dirt everywhere. And in that moment, I realized, uh-oh, I never told her about this. Um, life cannot survive without water. And so Yakima, the city, back when it was founded, had to divert water from a main, the Columbian River, had to divert water from the Columbia River to make it to this city so they could establish it. Otherwise, no produce, no vegetables. Ironically, Yakima is the number one distributor of I was about to say produce. It's too broad. Apples. Orchards. You go there, there are orchards upon orchards. And it blows my mind because I think this place could never grow orchards if it didn't have a man-made canal run through it to give it life. It needs water. It cannot survive without it. There's no fertility. There's no life. The city of Babylon had the Euphrates River run right through it. Underneath its walls, in fact. And cause it to be a great fertile city. Meanwhile, while Belshazzar is having this party, thinking that the Medo-Persian empire attacking him, they're never going to get in. Well, if they continued to try and break down the walls, he probably was right. They never would have been able to. Their leaders had a good idea. Historians record that what they did was they went a couple miles up outside of the city of Babylon to a part of the Euphrates River, and they dammed it up. And when they dammed it up, the river running right underneath the city of Babylon dried up, and the Medo-Persians literally were able to come right up underneath the Babylonians and take the city in a night. And that very night, Belshazzar was put to death. So let me give you a little bit of allegory here. I don't normally allegorize a text, but I think it's appropriate to do it here. Belshazzar took for granted his source of life. And once that source ran dry, the enemy took him. Pride was the culprit. I said pride was the problem back at the beginning of this message. Pride is the problem. And you might think it's not really an issue. You might think you have it under control. You might think that as long as it doesn't overtake you, then you're fine. And then one day you find yourself having party after party after party. Um, and you start telling yourself things like this. There's nothing others can teach me. What can my family history teach me? What can my leaders teach me? What can my church teach me? I don't need any of that. I'm my own person. I only learn by living life myself. So I don't need to listen to everybody else. I make my own rules. Pride will get you to think that it's my kingdom and I'll party as much and whenever I want to. Pride will tell you that my pleasure is the most important thing. Pride will tell you I don't need God. In fact, pride will tell you that I'll show everyone how much I don't need God. And pride will convince you that I'm better off without God. And I can make a mockery of his name in the process. Pride is a problem. You're living your life with pride right underneath you. And then one day you wake up and your entire kingdom has been ripped from your hands and you are about to be put to death. And you ask yourself, how did I get here? I have been weighed and I have been found lacking. I end this message with a call for you to come back to Jesus. The only reason you are going to stand before God and he is going to say you didn't measure up is because if in this moment, in this life, on this earth, as long as you draw breath, decide to dig your heels in the ground and say, I set my own path. I don't need God. Why would I ever listen to you? That's the only reason. Listen to me. God is not going to call you out of darkness and into light, out of the world and into his presence to continue 
to do this to you every single day when you've done something bad or good. Say, oh, did you measure up today? I don't think so. You better pray a little bit harder. Oh, you know, you're still not measuring up. You got to read that Bible a little bit more. Oh, you didn't measure up today. You better go and start volunteering more. You better lie less. You better stop being so wicked with your thinking. You, that's not how the gospel works. It's not. It's new life in Christ. It's not about fixing all of who you were. It's about God saying, I'm going to show you who you are in me. That's it. And that old self is going to try to keep rearing its ugly head. But this right here, this is not an issue anymore. The world is going to continue to try to measure you up. God does measure, but he measures the wicked against wickedness. And then what I will say is that Biblically, I do believe that one day when we stand in heaven, we will be judged for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, good or bad, but that's not about salvation. The Bible talks about a crown of life or treasures in heaven that Jesus himself said in Matthew 6 that we store up for ourselves. So there is a reality. While I don't encourage all of you to just keep doing good deeds so you can build up a, a kingdom in heaven, don't, don't, then you're still about you. But understand that as you serve God and build his kingdom, there are treasures being laid up in heaven for you. So that's, that's a lot that we see here. But where we need to land is to agree. And I hope we can agree. And if not, I would encourage you to think about it. Pride is a problem. And if you can agree with that, I would encourage you to take the next step and ask yourself, is pride a problem for me? It's one thing to agree that it's a problem. It's another thing to ask yourself, is it my problem right now that I need to allow God to take a look at in my life? Would you stand with me on your feet as we close? You know, I, I love that in spite of how bad we might mess things up and in spite of how we might be able to answer that question, how did I get here? And we could be honest and say, well, I did this, 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 and this. And it could all be true. Man, I am so much more grateful for the fact that it doesn't matter how I got here. It matters where God is bringing me. It matters where the Spirit of God is leading me. Right here, right now, in this moment, you don't have to stay stuck in this remorse of how did I get here? I agree with you. Let me say for you, I know it sucks. I know it's not where you want to be. But you don't have to stay where you are with Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, right now. I pray that you would give your people rest. All those here that are humbling themselves before you and they submit to your sovereign will, your plan, your ways. They trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe in you and they believe for you, God, to do what they cannot. Father, I pray that you would lift them up right now. Just as you promised these very exiles in the book of Isaiah that one day, as they wait upon you in exile, that you would lift them up on wings like eagles. They would soar above this kingdom of Babylon. They would soar above their place of exile on wings like eagles. That you would show them right now that with you, we will run but not grow weary. We will walk but we will not grow faint. Jesus, in you is life. You are our source I pray, God, that our source of life would not run dry. I pray that the pride that we might have to contend with in our lives right now would not be victorious and that we would see that our life source, our well of living water, if it is running dry, is running dry because we're removing ourselves from you. Father, if we have been so distant from you, if we have forgotten you, if we're not communing with you, I pray that we would recognize and see my source is running dry. My source is running dry. The enemy has dammed it up. I cannot just sit and party. I can't sit here and pretend like everything is okay and I can do what I want in my kingdom. I pray that when our source runs dry, we would see it. 
and we would address it and we would come running back to you saying, God, I'm sorry, here I am. I humble myself before you. And then we would abide in you, Jesus. And in you, we would have life and life more abundant. So Father, I pray for abundant life upon all of us here today. Let my brothers and sisters here receive you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Let them trust you as their Lord and Savior. Let them confess to you their need of you as their Lord and Savior. We ask all of these things in your mighty name. And the people of God agreed together and said, amen, amen, amen. amen. God bless you. Go with the Lord. Uh, Give Pastor Chase a high five on the way out for his incredible act. And we'll see you soon.